Episode 79, Dr. Noor Ali, physician, surgeon, and health insurance advisor. So my favorite mistake has been not knowing how to write a resume. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For show notes, links, and more about Dr. Ali and her work, you can go to markgraben.com slash mistake 79. Our guest today is Dr. Noor Ali. She is a doctor and a surgeon. She's doing work these days as a health insurance advisor here in the U.S. Um, She describes herself as a passionate and strong-willed mother, wife, doctor, researcher, and entrepreneur. And she is a champion of women in science who want it all. So I guess we'll get a chance to learn more about what that means and, and more about her. But um, Noor, first off, thank you for being here today. How are you? Yes, wonderful, Mark. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the honor to be on your show. Uh, I hope we can have a fun episode and, you know, offer some uh, a good show for your listeners today. Yeah, well, I'm sure this this is going to be uh, this is going to be fun and informative. Um, Dr. Noor's website, uh, by the way, is drnoorhealth.com, and we'll make sure that that's in. The show notes. Um, so, Nora, as we ask everybody here on the show, I know this question is not a surprise. You know, what is looking at your work and your career? What has been your favorite mistake? Yes. So, my favorite mistake has been. So, I went to medical school abroad in my native country, Bangladesh, uh, and when I came back to the states for work, I did not know how to write a resume. So, my favorite mistake has been not knowing how to write a resume, and really not getting any opportunities for appropriate work in my field. So tell, tell us more about that. I mean, what, what sort of, I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing you had difficulty finding a position. How, how did you learn that was connected to your resume? What, what sort of mistakes were you making there? Yeah. So when I um, when I came back to the States after my training abroad, my medical training uh, in internal medicine and general surgery, um, there's a process for foreign medical practitioners to go through a licensing exam and process in order for us to practice in the States. Um, So as I was looking for work as a qualified licensed international physician, I didn't know how to craft a resume that would, you know, speak to my skills at that level. So I was really, not only was I not getting any appropriate work, the only responses I was getting was, was for like, as a lawnmower and things like that. So when I, you know, for, for one of them, I recall telling them like, have you even taken a look at my resume? You know, I'm a licensed physician and surgeon. What makes you think I'm qualified to mow lawns? And I suppose I am, but you know, is there anything else that you have for me? You know, questions of that sort. So uh, really, I just didn't understand the system, didn't understand what was required. And I was just not getting any work. Yeah. Did you at some point then get some coaching and, and some feedback that, um, got your resume pointed in a better direction? Um, not when it 
not really, actually not. I, I still didn't understand what I had to do or where, what I was missing, you know, um, now looking back years later, understanding the system, the ATS system, how it's screened, the process flow, knowing all of that would have probably been a lot better at that time. But when I was going through it, I didn't even know enough what knowledge to seek out or who to go for help or mentorship to change my situation. Um, and as a result, I was, you know, I ended up doing work that I was way I, I worked at a subway making sandwiches because I was literally marked not getting any work. I even tried to work for as a nurse as a nursing position even though I was overqualified for that and even then I wasn't um, allowed work. That's how awful it was and I just didn't know what to do about it. Yeah. So I mean clearly you you figured things out. Um, tell us a little bit more about that journey. I mean did you become an entrepreneur? because of those difficulties finding something that that was a fit? Yeah, I suppose so. So one of my main reasons for reaching out to you and, you know, we had a little call where I, I was kind of struggling to find out what would be a good topic. And I realized that that experience of not being quite qualified or overqualified for whatever positions I was getting and not being able to translate that properly on paper, I felt a much greater sense of self-worth than I was able to convey on that one sheet of paper. So I knew that I was capable of a lot more and I could do a lot more, but I had no one else to to validate that. And I believe those rejections or, or that one blow after the other ultimately led me to this path of entrepreneurship where I was like, well, screw it. You know, if no one else is going to... Uh, acknowledge the value that I'm giving myself here. Well, let me take advantage. Let me take charge of that and let me carve my own path. Um, so that mistake of not knowing how to write a resume and being overqualified for almost everything has led me to uh, to the entrepreneurship journey that I am on today. Yeah. So um, can you uh, maybe explain a little bit for um, the audience I think people not real might not realize I, I don't have a real deep understanding of this, even though I've sure. been around healthcare myself uh, for 15 years. When somebody like yourself has this this training um, and experience uh, in another country, what happens then here coming to the U.S.? It seems like some of that talent um, maybe goes to waste. There's not re reciprocity in the licensing sure. uh, across borders. Is that right? Sure. So the medical education is recognized if you go through like an equivalency program where you submit your transcript and your grades and they match that with, uh, you know, the courses and the grades and the system here. And ultimately you get an equivalency certificate, which states that, yes, your education is acknowledged, it's accredited, um, your degree in X country is equal to an MD, a doctor of medicine degree here. However, to practice medicine, you still have to pass the licensing exams and the licensing exams are a series of exams that, you know, are administered to, you know, you, you, United States uh, students here, medical students here, where they take it in um, as they go through med school. Now, I've taken my version of my licensing exams where I studied medicine, and I'm, I was way past that, and I was a practicing uh, physician and surgeon. So for me to have to, it's not necessarily starting from score one, because I'm not going back to school, but the first step of the licensing exam is assessing really basic medical sciences, which is which are things that I had learned six seven years prior, you know, when I was at that time. So for there's a big disconnect with foreign physicians being active 
active licensed practicing practitioners and having to take exams and do well, you know, they're very competitive. So not just take it and pass it. You have to do very, very well um, assessing basic sciences, which is really like I was like 18 years old when I you know, studied that material. So I really struggled and it was a big challenge, not only coming to terms with um losing that credibility and having to re-identify myself, but also um, feeling this, you know, my ego working against my other ego, knowing that, well, I'm a licensed physician, but yet I can't practice because I don't remember this one enzyme in the Krebs cycle, which I studied Mm -hmm. like seven years ago. I don't remember ever grilling uh, my my doctor on uh, their knowledge of the Krebs cycle. It it seems like that's not the most relevant thing. Right. It's not the most relevant thing to the practical practice. Yes. And it, and that's uh, it just the mindset is just so different. You know, when you're practicing medicine, you're thinking treatment and management and the, and the patient centric care who's in front of you. But when you're in medical school, you're memorizing steps and enzymes and numbers and very it's a lot of rote memorization. So that disconnect really, you know, to speak on behalf of all foreign medical graduates who are trying to make a living and trying to get established in the United States, it's it's everything. It, you know, it's the crux of, of the struggle for us. Yeah. Now, is that something you still might pursue or are, are you, you found other professional pathways that you think will be fulfilling here? Mark, I don't think I have a good answer for that. Um, deep in my heart, I, I still that's I feel like that's my calling and that's what I was born to do. But I've taken a different turn uh, and I'm very happy with where I am in my life right now. And I don't know if I can necessarily handle or juggle both or even want to. Um, so I don't I don't really know. I'd, I'd love to, but I don't know if that's a practical or feasible for me at this stage. OK, well, sure. So um, how did I be curious to learn more? Let's let's talk about the work you do related to um, health insurance, because that is. You know, for, for listeners outside the U.S., um, I, I know it's it's hard to get your head around the U.S. health system sometimes and what has to be navigated or the mistakes that people might make. And we can explore that here. Um, but how did you move into that type of work? Like, are, are there certain types of people that you help navigate the health insurance market? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I specialize in working with um, entrepreneurs and small business owners, really anyone who has to purchase or, or fi- figure out their health insurance on their own. I just really help kind of draw out their options and figure out what's going to be best for them. Um, my specialization in health insurance is medically underwritten policies, which really puts back into the equation what um, Obamacare took out with the Affordable Care Act in 2008. So essentially, the younger and healthier you are, um, the lower risk you are to a health insurance company and you can get better rates and better coverage. So this is significant for small business owners in the growth phase who are growing because having a health insurance premium that's tied solely to your income can be quite detrimental in the long run, Um, especially if you're doing well. You know, you can end up having health insurance premiums that are greater than your home mortgages and and people don't don't always love that, right? And they sometimes end up foregoing it altogether. Um, So what I'd like to come do is is present a solution for that population that say, hey, there's other things out there. You probably just don't know about it. Let me help you kind of draw those options out and see what we can do. So, uh, and, you know, even though I'm an entrepreneur, um, I have the benefit of um, getting health insurance through my wife, who has a a more traditional corporate role. Um, So this, this is not something I've personally 
um, had to navigate. So uh, I, I am really curious, maybe you can elaborate on the situation where, let's say somebody's really starting off, they're, they're growing a business, they're not paying themselves yet a salary, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. their income is low, and then let's mm-hmm. say a year or two later, the business starts really taking off. Is that then the trap that you were describing if they have something that's tied to a percentage of income? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And there's two, and and depending on the situation, I'll advise accordingly. You want to take advantage of the situation you're in. um, And and knowing is really half the battle. What I find mostly is they just don't know their option. They don't know what to do. And because it's so confusing or or either they just don't understand it, they just end up saying, well, whatever, I'd rather just not even have health insurance, which is sad to me. Or, Or I see a lot of entrepreneurs who are afraid to leave their corporate jobs and pursue their dreams and passions because they're afraid of losing the benefits. Um, And I'm in a similar boat like you, uh, Mark. I'm with... under my husband's corporate plan. And he's, we're very fortunate. He works for a very large corporation and we get amazing benefits. But um, if we didn't, this is something that I'd have to figure out for myself. Um, So here's a little advice for for your listeners. If you're an entrepreneur and you are making, let's say less than $30,000, a year, take advantage of the Obamacare or healthcare.gov tax credits and subsidies because the government will help you. They'll pay a portion of your premium because you have a lower income. However, as soon as you cross that mark, as soon as you cross that 35000 mark and you're losing that subsidy, you are going to have, get penalized not only in back premiums, the IRS will come back and take those premiums from you, um, and your premiums are going to shoot up. So that's a time to you know pull out of the healthcare market and possibly Possibly look at private plans to see if that might serve you better, serve you and your business better. Mm-hmm. And so then you also help people navigate that. If And it, does yes. that apply to individuals or let's say if it's a small company that's getting to the point where they do want to offer a health insurance plan to their employees? Do you mm-hmm. also help people navigate yep. that? Yep, absolutely. I do individuals, families and small businesses, typically under 10, because then after 10 and then 50, that every mark, you know, the, the laws change and their options change. So I like to work with under 10 and we can offer a lot of flexibility. And this is something else that a lot of small business owners don't know. If you're growing, but you can't necessarily, you want to reward your team that helped you grow, but you can't necessarily afford to pay for health insurance for their whole family, right? What you can do is just connect them to a resource like me and say, hey, I can't give you health insurance, but please talk to her. Maybe you can figure out a solution for yourself. Maybe I can contribute 25% of your premiums or offer you a $200 a month stipend or credit, and you can figure out what policy works for you. So those are some flexible options that I like to offer that a lot of small business owners don't consider. Mm -hmm. And then I saw on your website, you know, there's this big question of, okay, well, what, what does this cost? So maybe you can explain a little bit that. Um, people who are looking for that advice don't have to pay, they don't pay you directly. No, not at all. They they don't pay anything at all. In fact, if you are even on a corporate plan and you just want to know, like, is this really my best option or is there a private plan that's better out there? I really encourage anyone and everyone to just have a conversation with me. Number one, it costs absolutely nothing. It's free. Uh, I consider myself very well versed in the in the insurance industry. We have laws that change every week, guys. And uh, in, health insurance is governed by state, not by federal. So each state, again, has their own laws and bylaws. So I I stay up to date and current on all that. Just so if you are just curious to know what your options are, I highly encourage a conversation with me. It doesn't cost a thing. Uh, And if I'm able to tell you that there's something out there that's better than what you have right now, all you'd pay for is really the benefits you sign up for. Yeah. So it sounds like there's a parallel when you talk about the laws changing and the market changing all the time. I've I've heard that anymore uh, a physician can't possibly 
keep up with all of the new research and medical knowledge uh, that's that's coming out. You certainly shouldn't be expected to memorize all of that. It sounds like the, the health insurance market is um, just as challenging then. It, it really is. I thought I would be getting away from a world of studying when I went from medicine to, to insurance, but nope, it's, it's just as much, if not more. So uh, constantly changing laws and it's different. It's, it's, a, it's a business and then, you know, finance world, which is quite different from the medical world, but just as much upkeep in terms of, you know, continuing professional and medical education. Mm-hmm. Are there any other common mistakes that come to mind that individuals or uh, small companies make when it comes um, shopping for insurance or choosing an insurance plan? What what are some of the most frequent things that you try to help people avoid? Yeah, Um, I would say for young, healthy individuals, one of the biggest mistakes that I see is choosing for a high deductible, low premium plan. I think that something like that may work for, let's say, home or auto insurance, where you're not really expecting to use your insurance, but you have to have it. So you just want to pay the least out of pocket. But when it comes to health insurance, that's really not the right way to think, especially if you're young and healthy. So what that means, if you're a young individual on a low premium, high deductible plan, you're paying your premiums every month. And then God forbid, in the very unlikely situation that you fall ill or something happens, you then have a very high deductible to meet. And high deductible, we we say, let's say $10,000. So not only did we pay the insurance company our premiums every month, now that we have to actually use our insurance for something big, you again, as the individual is coming out of pocket. Um, so that's something I like to educate on, especially for young professionals. Don't go for the high deductible. You want to choose a little to nothing, no deductible. Yeah, because somebody who's young might think there's low risk. But I imagine if you're young, we all know people who, who have been young who have either unfortunately had a major accident or a serious illness. And those then become catastrophically expensive. So it seems like it might be low percentage of something going wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm being an engineer and a statistician here. I'm thinking like, well, the yes. expected value yeah. of something bad happening. Um, yeah, that's 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 but something it, it, people that's probably statistic- don't take into account well enough. Yes. Well, the, it's actually the, the basis. The basis of this advice is actually that statistic that there is quite actually a low chance that something will go wrong. But in when if and in that event, when something goes wrong, you want to make sure that your insurance company is actually stepping up first because of all the premiums you've made, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'd like to explore a little bit. Um, well, for one, for background, I, I should have asked you up front, what was your specialty as a, a physician and surgeon? Sure. So when we, uh, in countries, in developing third world countries like Bangladesh, where we have a very high population and um, very, very low resources, we are trained in absolutely everything. So my training is internal medicine, general surgery, and OBGYN. And my special interest areas are actually women's reproductive medicine. So most of my experience that's outside of my formal training is actually in, um, you know, in gynecology and and obstetrics. Mm -hmm. And um, there are, so back in Bangladesh, have there been great strides in recent years when it comes to measures like infant mortality or maternal 
mortality. Yes, Bangladesh. Thank you so much for asking. Yes, I'm so proud of this actually because Bangladesh happens to be one of the um, the top countries with the greatest improvements in public health. And infant mortality and maternal mortality are the two biggest markers that uh, demonstrate or that illustrate a state of a country's public health status. Okay, well that's great to hear. And yes. uh, we we still have. Uh, uh, you, you could tell us more about this if you like. Still, great strides to be made here in the United States when people take a look at the the well known figure that you, uh, healthcare in the United States is the world's most expensive. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean we have the world's best outcomes, and unfortunately, that includes some of those same core measures around infant mortality, um, prenatal care, maternal. Um, uh, Health yeah. problems. Maternal or, and or health care. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. And actually, the, there's more and more. I know uh, quite a few um, journalists working on this. Elizabeth Rosenthal, one, a Harvard grad, a Harvard medical doctor, who's who writes a lot about this, uh, that when we keep saying, well, healthcare system is broken, it's broken. Well, what does that really mean? How did it get this way? So she writes a series that's good that goes really in depth into it and compares other countries' healthcare systems and cost uh, to try to identify, well, what's the problem? What's the a grassroots problem and how what can we do to fix it yeah yeah I've, I've read her work um she's she's really good and and there's also yeah. the challenge looking at the united states there are disparities across um different groups within the united states so Absolutely. there's still long a long way to go a lot of uh, room for improvement and um, providing people access to care um, in in different ways is of course a big part of that yes equation. yes absolutely mark so um you know, and part of your bio and, and the way you describe yourself, I think, you know, there's two parts of this we can explore here before wrapping up. One is being a champion of women in science. Mm-hmm. And then the part of that sentence, um, a champion of women who want it all. So maybe, you know, uh, first off, um, can, you, can you speak to, you know, the importance of, of being a champion for, um, for women who are interested in science or pursuing this at different ages? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Um, the, the category of, of pursuing science as an educational trajectory um, p- puts you on a different level because when when you're with with peers in, in a scientific background, there's an edge of competitiveness. There's you're already bucketed into a you know a higher intelligence group, and I think those factors automatically you know shape not only, not just perspective of, of how you view life, how you view challenges, how you try to, uh, you know, achieve success, what success means to you. So I think that just being a, a woman, being a woman in science, those are just really core layers of identity that shape me for who I am. And I know that other women in science, when they read that, they know exactly what I'm talking about, like having that background, what that means. Um, yeah. So it sounds like you're saying that even if, Science is not the end point in terms of uh, career, yeah. that the education provides a lot of benefits that carry over into other careers or other aspects of life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it provides an advantage, a great advantage. Having a background, a, a scientific background, I found that, you know, just be, because of my medical background and having this extensive clinical experience, although I'm not utilizing it on a day-to-day basis for my business right now, it makes so much, so, so many things easier for me. You know, I don't have to think twice. I don't have to Google something because I automatically, and I was like, well, I went to med school. I don't have to review this. You know, I, I know how to do this. I know what medication this is. So, you know, having that background and and a foundation educationally, I think really is, is empowering 
Yeah. So then um, the other part of that, that sentence, women who want it all or women in science yes. who want it all. Um, is, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Or, you know, some people, um, I mean, yeah, um, can't speak to this really as, as a man, but I hear conversations sure. of, of, of sometimes there's debate around um, can you really have it all as a woman is a mistake to want it all. That's not me saying that, but just posing sure, a sure. question. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point. And I think uh, that that portion of, of how I describe myself didn't really come about until last year when I became a mother, I had a son. Um, and that's when the all came into play, really understanding that being you know, motherhood as a value, family as a value, in addition to education and career as a value, that's what I mean by all, you know, being able to be a mother and serve my family, make sure they're all taken care of and they're happy, as well as me feel, feeling fulfilled in my career because I've achieved my uh, milestones and what I define to be a su success. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful to you, Mark, for pointing out that statement because there's so much in those words, you know, a woman in science, a woman who wants it all. There's so much depth to it. Um, and I feel like if you're a woman or a mom in science who craves it all, wants it all, has it all, uh, you know exactly what I mean and what I'm talking about and the challenges that come with it. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's still a lot of um, things to be sorted out in um, society in terms of um, kind of you know, old workplace rules or habits or guidelines that were developed for um, a male workforce. Sure. Um, like a case in point, my home state of Michigan, this is outside the realm of science a little bit, um, but there was a, a, a woman in the Michigan state legislature um, who had a child and there are absolutely no guidelines um, for her to take maternity leave. Oh, there wow. are no okay. guidelines for her to be able to vote or participate um, remotely. And um, I, I think it's just it just goes to show that we still have a lot of things um, to sort out to um, to give women, um, you know, I don't know if opportunity is the right word. And I will say accommodation, that might be a mistake, but to provide support and to sure. make sure that we're not putting barriers in the way of women pursuing careers, whether that's science or public right. service and government. Right. Exactly. I agree. There's a, there's a lot to do. And, and a lot of it is, is not just, you know, it might involve undoing, you know, undoing mindset and mentality as well as undoing infrastructure, you know, let's turn the storage room into a breastfeeding room for someone who might need privacy if they have a little one at home. And, and I think, you know, one of the, the, this might be obvious, but I think organizations are still figuring this out of making sure women's voices are involved in um, decisions and policies, um, because otherwise, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I would have blind spots. Yeah, to certain yeah. issues. And I, and You're I right. And I, and I don't think we should blame organizations or point fingers or, or be upset or angry because, like you said, we're all still figuring it out. And I think a good place to start, you know, let's say an organization has just male leadership and they understand the pressure and the need uh, and they want to make a change, but they just don't know how. I would say start at your office, start at who your employees are and just ask, hey, what can we do to support you better? You know, do you need a, a private space for pumping or can 
can we, you know, what resources can we give you to help you be a better mother? What, you know, have you felt unsupported at meetings or, uh, you know, things like that? You know, if you don't know where to start, just look around you and ask specifically the employee that you're trying to serve instead of maybe trying to copy another company. And then the, the female at your workplace is still disgruntled because you haven't served her needs. So I would say that's a good place to start. Well, that sounds like really good advice. And um, as someone who gives advice in the realm of um, health insurance, Noor, thank you um, for sharing um, your different thoughts and experiences and perspectives with us. So again, our guest today has been Dr. Noor Ali. You can find her website, drnoorhealth.com, and there will be links in um, the show notes. And um, really want to thank you for taking time to be here as a guest today. Really, really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much, Mark. It was such an honor. I had a wonderful conversation and I appreciate your time as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks. Again, for show notes, links, and more, you can go to markgraven.com slash mistake 79. And I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they've started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work, and they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.